0: Ambassador Marie Masha Yovanovitch has a stark but hopeful story to tell of the dedication of foreign service officers and her own career. As ambassador to Ukraine, her endeavors to encourage democracy, support anti-corruption efforts, and advance U.S. interests and values in Ukraine no doubt left a lasting impression that continues to inform the policies of a country now under direct military attack. On April 26, 2023, she sat down with CCWA President and Ambassador in Residence, Heather Hodges for a special luncheon foreign policy forum. Please enjoy.
1: Well, good ad- afternoon, everyone. Uh, let me say, first of all, that the idea, as honored as I am that we are recognizing the US Foreign Service, it wasn't my idea. They, the, the people at uh, the office came up with the idea, and, uh, and it was also supported by our board. So um, we're, we're delighted, or I'm delighted, uh, but uh, it's not that I, I uh, worked on getting that. <laughs> um, well, first of all, uh, congratulations on your book. Uh, it, um, I know you didn't expect to write this book, uh, but in writing it, you actually contributed more, even more than you had in your career, uh, to help people understand uh, the work of the Foreign Service as well. For our audience, uh, if, you, uh, if you haven't already read Ambassador Yovanovitch's book, I strongly recommend it. If you're here today, I suspect you know the ending of the book. But before you get there, there is so much to learn about the Foreign Service, about how foreign policy is made, uh, how foreign policy is carried out, and also a bit about the successes and failures of uh, our foreign policy. Uh, It it really is an excellent overview. You will also read about Masha's career and understand why she became a three-time ambassador. I can assure all of you that that is not a common thing. Uh, I'm not going to go over her bio. You have her bio in your program. Uh, But I would like to to make note of uh, that among several high-level jobs, she was ambassador to Kyrgyzstan, to Armenia, and Ukraine. And in Ukraine, she had previously served as the deputy chief of mission. And since so many people have already asked me this question, no, we did not really coincide. But when I was in Moldova, I was there from 2003 to 2006. She was the deputy chief of mission in, in Kyiv. But we didn't, you know, it, you're in Moldova and you're in Ukraine. <laughs> um, you will, in the book, you will also discover or see what a totally loyal and committed uh, foreign service officer or public service she was and the person who never ever imagined that she would be shamefully uh, not supported by people at the highest level of the US government. Uh, it is a very, very interesting read. Today we're going to do a interview format, and I will begin with some questions, and then we will open questions up to our audience. So I thought I would we would go start out with what is the claim that Russia has on Ukraine and we also know that uh, an American politician fairly recently said that um, that uh, this was a territorial dispute uh, could you please help our, our, the our audience understand what the claim supposedly is and what's wrong about the issue of territorial dispute
2: yeah. Um, So first of all, let me just say I'm so pleased to be here with all of you here in Cleveland. It's my first visit to Cleveland, and um, it's really an honor to be here. And I'm I'm so thrilled that you're going to be uh, honoring foreign service officers in the State Department. I mean, I think that's really, really great. So thank you. Um, So to your question, so uh, Russia and Putin personally have claimed that they have claims to Ukraine. And you said in your question, supposedly, and I think that's that's the word because or the right word, um, because um, <clears throat> Putin has been rewriting history for um, you know the last many years that he's been in in power, and now it has taken on kind of a life of its own. I mean, this is a thing about disinformation. You put it out there often enough, and pretty soon it becomes you know the truth, or at least the truth in some people's eyes, or they just become so confused they don't know what the truth is, and they just kind of give up. So. Um, I mean, you know, Russia has um had a long history, Ukraine has actually had an even longer history. Um and, you know, borders have changed over, you know, many many years in, in Europe and in all sorts of uh all all over the world. <clears throat> and um in um uh you know, o- over the years um uh, the the Ukraine Republic was one of the fifteen republics of the s- former Soviet Union, and when uh, the Soviet Union fell apart in 1991, each republic became its own country. So you know Latvia, you know the 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 borders of the Latvian Republic um, became the country, the independent and uh, sovereign country of Latvia. That was true for all of them, including Ukraine, and Russia recognized um, those borders. In you know, multiple treaties and, and agreements, um, certainly with Ukraine as well. And in fact, um, just a fun fact, I've only met President Putin once, and it was in 2001, uh, when I was the number two at our embassy in Ukraine, and he was there on the occasion of Ukraine's 10th anniversary of independence. and he was there to celebrate with the Ukrainians. So um, you know, he has recognized Ukraine's independence in more ways than one, shall we say? Um, And, you know, I mean, Putin has put out a lot, you know, both verbally and in writing about historic Russian lands and how Russia has a claim to them and so forth. Um, But um, you know, like I said before, borders change um, and Russia no longer has a claim to Ukraine, just as it doesn't have a claim, for example, to Alaska. Alaska. was a part of the Russian Empire back in the day. Uh, you could say um, that it's historically uh, Russian. Um, and I don't think anybody in this room thinks that Russia has a claim to Alaska. So, you know, the same thing is true for Ukraine um, that, um, uh, you know, Putin wants to rewrite history and talk about how there is no Ukraine without Russia and that Ukraine should be a part of, you know, a new either Soviet or Russian Empire. And he is going to make it so, following in the, you know, the footsteps of Peter the Great in terms of expanding um, uh, the, the, the the Russian um, motherland. Uh, but you know that is his fantasy. It it doesn't mean that there's actually a legitimate claim, and we should not forget that um, ever. Um, and that is you know why we support Ukraine. Um, so to call that this a territorial dispute. I think, I think I've already answered that question. This is not a territorial dispute. This is about one country um, invading another country with no provocation, um, no good reason to do it, except that they want that country for their own. And so they are violating borders. They are violating sovereignty. They are violating the rights of every Ukrainian. And um, that is um, in contravention of you know, how nations are supposed to behave with each other. Um, ever since uh, World War II, when countries came together, including the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, um, because nobody wanted a war like that to happen again, and so uh, what is um, you know wonkily called the uh, um, international rules-based order was formed. You know, over a period of many years, institutions, values, um, expectations, mores, um, uh, treaties uh, were formed, um, and. Um, That has more or less kept the global order since 1945, and it has more or less kept more people more secure, more free, and more prosperous than at any other time in human history. So I'm not telling you that the order, as we call it, um, that is out there right now is perfect and um, doesn't require, you know, some rethinking and some reimagining and some reform. It does. Um, But... Um, to you know, kind of throw it away without replacing it with something better first, something that is more, um, more representative of the world as it is today as opposed to the world as it was in 1944, and one that is more fit for purpose, not only to manage um, and meet the challenges of 1945, but the new challenges that we're facing right now and the challenges that are yet to come that we, we you know, can't even begin to imagine yet. And so, um, there's some real hard work that needs to be done, um, but invading a sovereign country is not the way to do it.
1: How strong was um, Russian influence on the media? And I'm asking that question in in Ukraine, in Ukraine. yeah, um, both w- the first time you were in Ukraine and later was it at all different? Uh, And did the Ukrainian people, or do the Ukrainian people, but when you were there, recognize uh, Russian misinformation? Was there any way to combat it?
2: Yeah, that is such a good question and such a hard question to answer. So when I was there the first time, I arrived in 2001. That was 10 years after independence. And if you think about, you know, where the U.S. was 10 years after our independence, Yikes, you know, barely a formed uh, (laughs) country. Um, And, you know, the same thing was kind of true for Ukraine. Same thing was true for all of the new uh, independent states, as we called them. Um, It was very challenging. And so um, just as, you know, the leaders and the laws that had been um, inherited from the former Soviet Union and kind of continued on until they were changed um, in the new countries, um, the same thing was true for media. And so, uh, you know, Channel One, which was the Russian uh, or the Soviet-controlled um, um, broadcasting uh, channel, uh, extended all over the former Soviet Union, still uh, extended uh, when I arrived in, uh, in 2001. It was a very powerful vehicle. I mean, people were used to getting their information from that channel, um, as well as radio that was controlled by the Russian state that still, you know, broadcast. Um, and there wasn't necessarily anything nefarious about it. It was just, you know, the way things always were and it hadn't really changed yet. And new organic uh, Ukrainian, um, you know, ground up um, media hadn't really taken uh, completely hold yet. Um, and so, I, you know, I think it was, you know, it was hard for people to differentiate. Most everybody spoke Russian. Um, and so it was very easy to get your uh, your, your your news that way. Um, but in 2001, when I arrived in Ukraine, there was the beginning of the formation of civil society and civil society is something we all take for granted. You know, it is what forms the backbone of our democracy, which is, you know, an informed and active electorate. You know, people who kind of know what's going on out there and <clears throat> and are active and you know, so for example, you know, the PTA um, is 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 an example of a civil society kind of organization, the Boy Scouts, the um, you know, the garden club that manages all of the um you know the the beautification of your your hometown. Um, you know, those are volunteer kind of organizations, people who have the same interests or they see a need uh, and they come together and they, you know, plant beautiful flowers in, in the center of the town because they feel that that's, that's necessary and important and there isn't enough tax money to do it. You know, they're not waiting for permission. They're not um, waiting uh, for the mayor to say, you know, you are gonna do this. Um, they just do it because it, you know, it's part of, you know, what they feel is their civic obligation and, 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 and their interest. Another example might be um, a traffic light uh, that needs to be put in, I don't know, near where kids are crossing to go to school. You know, citizens can see the needs long uh, before, you know, the mayor or the city council can see it because they're every day with their kids. And so, you know, we don't like wait around hoping the mayor's going to notice. Um, we will tell the mayor that this needs to be done. And if there is an action, we will start a petition. And if that doesn't work, we will, you know, vote the bum out, right? And so that's kind of the essence of civil society where, um, where we are active and we take ownership of what is happening in our communities. And that was not the case in the former Soviet Union. The Communist Party controlled everything. And they stamped out any kind of activity or initiative, because that could be dangerous. You know, some kids getting together to play chess you know, just on their own. I mean, you know, they might start talking about world affairs or something. They might start getting ideas. And so you wouldn't want that. So it had to have the imprimatur of um, the Communist Party and you know, some adult to make sure uh, that everything was you know, strictly chess. Um, And so that was the world that all of the um, um, independent countries inherited in 1991. They didn't have the tools or the background uh, to sort of take initiative, right? But by 2001 in Ukraine, you could see that stirring. And um, you could see there were um, independent journalists, investigative journalists that were starting to report on how the government was doing, not always well, um, and on corruption um, by the current president at the time, um, and it was you know it was kind of uh, kind of interesting. It was just just starting, and then in two thousand and four, when there were fiddled presidential elections, you saw the Orange Revolution, and then fast forward to twenty fourteen, the Revolution of Dignity. That was that that was you know from the ground up. People who were. Um, dissatisfied in uh, 2014 because the leadership of the country, they could see the leadership of the country was stealing from the people. They were not being held accountable and um, they wanted um, their leadership to be held accountable. And they wanted you know, to, um, to live by the rule of law, one law for every single man and, and woman, not one law for the ordinary people and another law for, uh, for the um, privileged and the elite. And so, um, so getting back to the question, which was far, far afield from what I was just talking about. Um, so as this was all developing, Ukrainian, um, media, um, you know, started, uh, developing a life of its own and in the Ukrainian language, uh, which, um, you know, which was, you know, super important for, for, for many people and important, um, as, um, as a, um, element of uh, national identity and national unity. But all of these things take time. So, you know, the Russian media was still out there and um, continues to still be out there. Um, The, you know, the number one target for Russian media and and disinformation, I would say, is actually the Russian public, Um, but probably the number two is, um, is the Ukrainian public and with with the you know number three being uh, the the West and 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 the rest, um, so um, that's still out there. And I, I just read an article yesterday that Telegram, which is uh, an important social media site uh, for um, a, a Russian social media site, is the most popular uh, site in um, in Ukraine. Uh, they use that for their own communications in Ukrainian, um, but. You know, just as we are having our own discussions about social media owned by foreign countries or foreign foreigners, um, foreign companies, um, uh, I think Ukrainians are, uh, are as well. So, you know, this is, you know, watch this space. Um, and I think I think that people are becoming more aware of being manipulated um by whether it's social media or traditional media Um, but it's sometimes hard you know you're scrolling through you're listening with half an ear as you're getting your kids ready uh, for school and you know something just sinks in that that is a lie.
1: um throughout my career I've often felt that um Fighting or helping other countries fight against uh, corruption uh, has the has been sort of an inconsistent foreign policy objective. Uh, some countries you have programs and others you don't, right? But uh, you did have a good uh, anti-corruption program working with the Ukrainians on um, fighting um, corruption. I think it might be interesting to hear what co- what what does that mean? Anti-corruption uh, programs. What what did they consist of?
2: Yeah. So I, I would just note the first time that I was in Ukraine, we had an assistance program, but we didn't have any, any anti-corruption programs. Um, and we certainly didn't talk about corruption uh, as a problem in Ukraine. I think if Carlos Pascual, the ambassador that I worked for, if he had said that to President Kuchma, President Kuchma would have booted him out of his office and that would have been the end of that. Um, just as I would imagine if our current ambassador uh, went into Putin's office and started talking about corruption in Russia. Yeah, I don't think he would tolerate that. So, um, yeah, so we didn't, um, we didn't have a corruption, uh, you know, it was the elephant in the room, but we, we didn't go there. Um, but, you know, fast forward to 2014, it was the Ukrainian people who stood up and said, I want to live by the rule of law. I don't want to see this corruption. I don't want to see um, you know our, our, our money being stolen um, by the leadership of, of this country. And Yanukovych, um, who was the, the president uh, in 2014, he was you know greedy beyond greedy um, and um, kind of you know it, it was it was pretty appalling. I mean there's estimates that he took 40 billion dollars. Out of the country. That's a lot of money by any measure. It's certainly a lot of money in Ukraine. And imagine what Ukraine could have done with that money if if it had been um, been been used properly. So um, it was the Ukrainian people that kind of said, you know, we want to put a stop to this, and you know, we're gonna we're gonna protest, and um, you know, until until it stopped. And um, so they put the issue of corruption kind of on the map in Ukraine as a domestic political issue. And then the foreign community supported them. And so when, you know, when people say to me, oh, you know, well, Ukraine's such a corrupt country. Um, I mean, there's no question that there is a corruption, a serious corruption issue in Ukraine, and still is. Um, but uh, that's also true for many other countries, certainly in that part of the world, because that is part of the Soviet legacy. Um, that that issue has still not um, been um, dealt with in a satisfactory manner. And the reason we talk about it specifically with regard to Ukraine is because the Ukrainian people stood up and said, we don't want this. We want to stop it. And we want you, um, you know, international financial institutions. We want other countries with your assistance programs to come in and help us deal with this. So, um, so what did that look like? In the first instance, um, because it was such an emergency in 2014, where Yanukovych, when he fled, I mean, he looted uh, the treasury, and the interim um, um, president um, said um, <laughs> a number of times to me, you know, that he kind of—I'm op- I'm sure this is apocryphal—but you know, he opened up the vault and there was nothing in there. <laughs> um, but it is true that the that the country was bankrupt, and you know, how do you how do you keep it going? How do you keep salaries, you know, people paid and things like that? You don't want it to. The situation to get even worse, um, so there was there was a real emergency, and um, uh, foreign donors like the U.S., like the EU, the UK, World Bank, et etc., we were all ready to help. But we've been helping Ukraine, um, you know, for many many years. And we wanted to see results, just like the Ukrainian people wanted to see results. And so we were pretty tough, actually. And we were tough with the encouragement of reformers, both inside and outside the government. So many of the people in civil society who had, um, you know, stood out on the Maidan, created the um, first the Orange Revolution, then um, the Revolution of Dignity. Um, they um, they were like, you know, you need to hold our feet to the fire, um, and they. Um, uh, didn't in, in 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 2004 with the Orange Revolution, civil society went back to you know whatever they were doing otherwise after the revolution, leaving the job to the politicians. That didn't work. So in 2014, um, many of them joined the government. Some of them ran for parliament. Others became governors or whatever the case might be. Others stayed in civil society, but stayed engaged, helped with drafting legislation, various other things. And so they were our partners, both people in the Porchenko government and, uh, and outside of it. And they were like, you know, you need to hold us to account. There needs to be conditionality. That was really, really important. You know, We would support Ukraine, but Ukraine had to do the right things. It wasn't gonna be good money after bad. And, and that's really hard. Um, but you know Poroshenko, who was the incoming president, um, elected um, first president to be elected in, uh, and actually only president to be elected in in, in one round of presidential elections in um, uh, June of 2014. Um, he, you know, he, you know, he saw that he had to also be on uh, on a reform agenda, and so he um, and his prime minister. Took a lot of really, really difficult, um, difficult steps. So, what does the anti corruption part of of this look like? You know, one of um, the things that we all recognized was that, um, and Ukrainians first and foremost, is that, um, you know, you can't go anywhere if the judiciary is corrupt and if it's um, dependent on the executive branch. And so, you know, kind of doing um, helping Ukrainians with a an overhaul of every element of their judicial um, uh, judicial um, system, and that is still ongoing, uh, even even now um, um, in in the Zelensky um, administration. So that was one really important element, and another really important element was kind of professionalizing um, the judiciary and ensuring that the judiciary um, had. Um, the kind of salary that is necessary for somebody with skills, right? Um, because if you're not making enough money to put food on the table for your families, how are you going to survive? You're going to survive by selling your decisions. And so taking away that kind of temptation by providing um, you know sufficient, Uh, funds in in terms of salary was a really important commitment from the government, a really hard commitment from the government, because it was so much money compared to an average Ukrainian salary and hard politically, um, but an important step. Um, Another thing that that was done was to establish um, financial disclosures. Um, I have to say, I think the Ukrainians um, at the behest of one donor not us um, went a little bit overboard uh, in terms of even having to you know declare your 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 shoes if they're over a certain amount like designer shoes I guess can be very expensive but I mean it, 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 it the the detail and um, uh, became really uh, onerous far more onerous than what we have to do and what we do I can tell you as a former government official you probably can too is pretty onerous um but um, but it was important uh, that finding uh, about that um, that uh, government uh, public servants, you know, put out their assets out there. and that, you know, if from one year to the next there's an unexplained, you know, all of a sudden um, you know um, much more money, I mean, how, I mean, People can get more money legitimately, you know, through investments or whatever it is, but that that be explained uh, or explainable from the public documentation, and um, and I, I I think that that was also an important uh, reform. And in fact, um, once it took hold and once people understood what it meant, there were a whole bunch of no good nicks that resigned from government or didn't run for office because they didn't want to be held accountable because they knew they had something to hide. Um, so that was um, that was another reform. Yeah, I, I mean, I could go on but <laughs>
1: Actually, I want to get in two quick questions before we hand it over to uh, questions from our audience um, Zelensky became president of Ukraine Right after you left, mm-hmm. right? but I understand that you knew him um, Before when he was a candidate and maybe even when he was a comedian. I don't know but um, Could, well, do you want to share any insights on what he was like then? And could you ever have imagined that he would be the leader that he is today?
2: Yeah, yeah, there's so many things I can't imagine. (laughs) That's that's probably one of them. Um, But uh, yeah, so I met um, Zelensky in the fall of 2019, because even so September of 2019, even though so little known fact, perhaps for some of you. In other countries, um, elections are like a couple of months. Can you imagine? <laughs> so, in the fall of uh, in September of 2019, nobody had declared uh, for elections that would be sometime in the spring of uh, of uh, I- I'm sorry of 18 uh, in the spring of uh, 2019. Um, but in the in public polling, Zelensky's name kept on coming up, and he was uh, he was leading. And so, uh, you know, one of the things US embassies do is not only meet with um, people in government, but also people outside of government, the opposition um, that's in parliament, but also other people out there that um, may become influential or may take office. And Zelensky, you know, it was clear we needed to meet with him. So he came to the embassy. And, um, you know, I was expecting this really funny guy to walk in. Right. Um, and he was funny, um, but it was really clear um, because he told us several times that he was a businessman and that he had built. So he, um, you know, he started as an actor and a comedian and and, and continued on. Um, but he um, uh, had a um, production company and he produced, you know, movies, plays. He produced all the content, not all of the content, but much of the content for, um, for one of the, the channels in, in Ukraine, and also for the Russian-speaking world. I mean, he was first successful in Russia, uh, very successful in Israel, where there's a big Russian-speaking population, and in other parts of the former Soviet Union. So he, um, you know, he wanted us to know that he had created this through his own blood, sweat and tears, you know, with his uh, with his pals, many of whom uh, were from his hometown, and, um, and that he was a self made millionaire, he wasn't, you know, an oligarch who had stolen uh, his money, he was a self made millionaire. And he was really proud of that. And, you know, he had business skills, business chops um so that really kind of made an impression on me that that's how he wanted to present himself and i think it is true um that he he certainly has um a lot of uh, a lot of executive skills so um he did become um president he had an overwhelming mandate of uh, 73% and he was the um first um president who got um a majority in each of the um oblasts which is like a state um, in in the country. so he had he had the country's mandate um to 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 make change. And he ran on uh, two points in the platform. one was anti-corruption and the other one was ending uh, the war in the donbass. and um and he tried. he tried very hard um and made some progress on uh, on the corruption issues. but it was, you know, a lot harder than it looks like from the outside, as all of us know. and um and so by um, you know, by February of 2022, a year ago, he was a struggling president. Uh, he was very worried uh, about his standing, uh, which was in the, you know, high 20s, maybe, uh, popularity rating. So, you know, that big mandate was was no longer there. And he was thinking about presidential elections in 2024 and wondering, you know, was he going to be able to win again uh, or win? And then the war happened. And, um, you know, I think it was, transformative. And I think that Zelensky is, um, you know, he drew on his past um, as an actor and, um, you know, somebody with outstanding communication skills. And he, you know, embodied uh, the person that Ukraine needed him to be, you know, the brave wartime leader, the the Churchillian hero. And I think, you know, I'll just recall for you, you know, that... um, moment um, a day or so after the war started when, you know, you had that long um, convoy of vehicles uh, leading to, to Kiev um, and um, something like a 100 assassination um, teams in the city of Kiev, there purposefully to kill um, Zelensky and his family. And the Russians were putting out, you know, all of the disinformation, you know, Kiev's going to fall. Zelensky is, um, you know, he's a coward. He's left the country. Um, you know, everybody should give up now. You know, we're liberating you, all of the stuff that we know. And um, Zelensky, um, he walked out that night. Um, and for Ukraine, and he, he and his team were in a courtyard. And for Ukrainians, it was very identifiable as the courtyard in front of the presidential building. And he said, President Tut, which means the president is here. And he galvanized um, Ukrainian public opinion and frankly, I think the world's public opinion that, you know, he was there in that moment. He was leading Ukraine, the Ukrainian people, but he was also channeling the Ukrainian people because I think all of us have seen that, um, you know, this isn't just Zelensky at the top doing it all by himself. It's every individual Ukrainian that is, you know, fighting in their own way, uh, you know, for their family, for their freedom, for their future. It's It's very inspiring.
1: And just real quick, like uh, this comes in the category of hoping people got their just desserts. Um, And you dealt with a lot of unsavory characters, and uh, they contributed to to your last days in in Ukraine. But I'm wondering in particular about um, uh, Yuri Lutsenko, who was in cahoots with Giuliani. Um, Did he ever get punished for some of his acts, or is he still in the picture?
2: So that's an interesting question. Um, so he was a very corrupt in individual and um, uh, worked for Poroshenko, was quite close to President Poroshenko. And um, at, during the COVID era, he had um, a program on, um, on uh, Poroshenko's TV channel called, um, uh, the, uh, the Truth Is My Vaccine. You know, and for somebody who was an inveterate liar <laughs> like Lutsenko, it was just uh, just an amazing thing. Um, but I understand uh, that he has volunteered um, to fight on the front. I, d- I don't know where he is and what his responsibilities are, um, but maybe he will make amends in in that way.
1: Okay, all right. We will open up for questions. Um, please, we have two microphones around the room, and we ask that you keep your question is short and to the point, uh, and um, we, you will be recognized.
0: Can we just see who has questions so we know how to plan our walk
2: around the room? Just raise your uh, hand.
3: Ambassador, I wanted to tell you I'm about a third way through your book, and I think it's a masterful book on a lot of levels. It's a very interesting story, uh, very engaging, a lot of funny stories. Um, The the Treatment of Women, obviously, plays big in in there in the State Department. I was actually surprised at some of the stories. Um, And the book has a lot of different levels. And one of the themes, at least so far, is the the notion of rule following, being a stickler for rules. And um, you take a very strict point of view, at least in the beginning, and I assume throughout the book, that uh, following rules is very important. You have to go by the book. but, at the same time, in society, um, there are people who skirt the rules, who push the lines on the rules, and they make advances in the economic area. for example, I think of Uber Uber, which you know, basically pushed the line on uh, flouting the rules on taxi service or uh, and, and so there, and even in the diplomatic world, sometimes you don't follow rules exactly, and you 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 get a benefit. But yet you'd have taken the point of view in the book that you really have to follow rules very strictly. And so I just was curious, why is that your upbringing? Or where where did you get that notion from? And I assume that theme goes throughout the book.
2: It it does go throughout the book. But perhaps um, I I didn't mean it quite as strictly (laughs) as um, as it came out in the uh, in the book. Um, I, um, yeah, I I am kind of a rules follower. I mean, I was brought up in an immigrant family. And you know, we followed the rules. And, I think you know a lot was uh, expected of me as a as a child, um, and I was told you know we needed to to give back um, to to the United States, and because we were here as immigrants, and we were fortunate to be here in a country uh, with um, with so many freedoms, so many rights, because both of my parents had grown up in uh, countries where they didn't enjoy those uh, those rights and they knew what it was not to be able to worship as you pleased not to be able to say what you wanted to live in fear and um so uh, i joined the foreign service and the foreign service is um you know uh, a, a, it's a pretty strict hier- hierarchy and it's also um you know we are inculcated and i think they're you know, this is probably true in every agency, um, that there is one foreign policy. Um, it is the president's foreign policy, whether that individual is a Republican or a Democrat, you can't have, you know, just cause we're ambassadors and think we're important. You can't have, you know, 200 different foreign policies out there. Um, that would be madness. Um, and so we have to follow, uh, that foreign policy. But in doing that, I mean there are a couple there are a couple of things. First of all, in the State Department, we really pride ourselves on having a very robust discussion before we have an agency position on what you know a particular policy should be. And, and it's really encouraged that you know you look at the pros and cons and you um, you know you don't want your boss to be blindsided um, that you know he thought or she thought that this was the greatest idea ever, but you know, didn't think about these five issues or the history of that particular country or whatever it is. So there's a robust discussion. Um, And then you, uh, you know, once the State Department and other agencies have a a, a position, um, then it's time for, you know, the interagency meeting that the White House calls, and, you know, then it's hashed out there. And so it's, you know, it can be a very frustrating policy, but there there is a pretty again a robust dis, uh, discussion of, of of the pros and 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 the cons, and um, at the end of the day, it is the president's decision on what that policy is going to be, um, or it, it's the decision of the person that the president has delegated that decision to, um, because you know Heather and I are not elected representatives of the people, the people elected the president. Um, They elected other people, um, you know, uh, you know, in the Senate and in the House. Um, But they elected the president in order, you know, one of his important or her one day uh, important duties is um, to, you know, set that foreign policy. And so once that foreign policy is set, you know, hopefully we've prevailed and our view is is the policy. But, you know, often that does not happen. And so then you need to ask yourself, you know, is this is this a policy you can implement? Is this a policy that you can make better? You know, not an active undermining of that policy, but you know, how can you make it better? Um, you know, out in the field, because you know, there's a general policy, but you know, all the I's are not dotted and the Ts crossed. There's a lot of room for um, creativity and. Um, you know, making it better is uh, is about all I can say for local conditions. Um, and, um, you know, that's what, what what I think most of us do. So, um, but, you know, sometimes people will feel strongly enough that they can't implement that policy. This is, you know, this is the line, their Rubicon. And so then they have to decide what they're going to do, how they're going to manage that. Are they going to send in, we have something, a channel called the dissent channel that Uh, allegedly goes to the Secretary of State or at least people around uh, him or her um, to say, you know, this policy is wrong and this is why? Um, Or do you feel that you need to quit um, and, you know, write a book and write op-eds and, you know, be in opposition to that policy? Or is this something that you can more or less live with? Um, Because I I will tell you, um, you know, there is no president that you're gonna agree with 100% of the time. You know, you're probably lucky if you can agree with that person 80% of the time. So where is your line? And I think that's something that each one of us has to decide on every, you know, every particular case. It usually doesn't come to that. It's not usually that that dramatic. Um, but um, it, it seems that that might be uh, where uh, where your thoughts uh, were, were going and I, I don't know if you want to ask a follow up. No, you didn't have time. I'll get with you later.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much, Madam Ambassador, for uh, your talk today. Um, Understanding the past is a powerful tool uh, to shape the path to the future. Having the experience of working in Ukraine, Uh, in aftermath of the events of 2014 and in Armenia in 2008 at the time of Russia's invasion of the neighboring country of Georgia provides you, I'm sure, a unique perspective on historical events. In your opinion, what lessons can be drawn from the past and how those lessons can help us Uh, cast the correct path into the future. Yeah. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Um, So I I would go back even further um, to um, Chechnya, the first, uh, or I guess it was the second um, Chechen war in um, 2000 when uh, Putin was running for president for the first time. And that was a brutal war, um, similar to what we've seen in Ukraine and Syria. And um, the international community, I mean, maybe there were some closed door conversations, but there, there wasn't much criticism. Um, there were certainly no sanctions or anything like that. And then fast forward to Georgia in 2008, where um, um, Russia grabbed you know—basically basically two, two hunks of Georgia and uh, declared them uh, in, in independent. Um, and the international community, um, You know, there was some, um, some uh, uh, public criticism, but there were no sanctions. And, um, uh, you know, the world kind of moved on. Um, President Obama became president um, several months later. He was intent on the reset. We had important business with, uh, with the Russians when it came to, you know, um, strategic uh, issues as well as Iran. We got those things done. Um, But Georgia was kind of put to the side. And then fast forward to 2014, where I think Putin, having learned the lesson that the West is not going to stand up for um, countries of the former Soviet Union, um, you know, kind of did a, a quick blitz into uh, Crimea. I mean, we, we didn't even know what had happened, and Crimea was oof, gone. Um, and then um, sort of the, the longer war in the Donbass that continued Uh, until, you know, through 2022. And then there was the total war that started in February of last year. And I think um, the lessons that Putin learned um, was that, you know, the West was um, thinking more about commercial issues than about strategic issues or about values issues. Um, And that um, the West was not going to stand up for its partners in the region um, it was uh, not united. It was not strong. And it was, you know, verbally, uh, maybe saying the right things, um, but not um, not convincingly enough. Putin could withstand that cost, um, even though in 2014, uh, there were sanctions um, put down and uh, he was kicked out of the, uh, the G8. Um, but I think he felt, well, you know, I, I can live with this, right? I mean, I can live with this, no, no problem. And so, uh, you know, fast forward to 2022, and I think he thought, um, you know, looking at the map, you know, this was his strategic window to uh, to finish uh, the the unfinished business of 2014, 2015, and uh, you know, Europe, uh, Angela Merkel had left the scene. Uh, France was going, France and Italy were going through um, some tough elections. Not clear who was going to uh, take over in those countries. The UK, enough said. Um, And um, I think he looked at the U.S. This was shortly after um, the Afghanistan evacuation, not our finest moment. Um, And I think he made an assessment that, you know, the West is weak and not going to come together. Um, And um, I've got the best military and Ukraine isn't a real country anyway. Um, So all of that together uh, mitigated that he would try again. And um, the lessons he learned was that we weren't going to stand up, but we um, we did uh, most importantly, Ukraine stood up and was far better prepared than it was in 2014-15. Um, you know, over the years, uh, the U.S. and other countries had helped train and equip uh, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian military. Um, and then, of course, uh, this over this past year, we've been pouring in security assistance. And it's gone to good use. The Ukrainians know how to use it, and they are using it, as the Russians have found out. So I think um, the lesson that I've learned and um, is in all of this is that You know, sometimes um, I think we all worry um, a lot about, are we provoking Putin? And, you know, I I think about what could be more provocative than somebody invading another country? I mean, that is a provocation in and of itself and needs to be stopped. But I think often um, the discussion in the United States is, we don't want to provoke Putin. If we do this, we'll cross his red lines. But this is not a conversation actually with Putin or the Russians. It's a conversation amongst ourselves in our heads where we are self- deterring that we don't want to do whatever whatever it might be because it might make uh, it might provoke Putin into doing something really terrible. like, you know, I, I mean, I don't know what could be worse than what he's done to Ukraine. Um, but um, you know that 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 it would be something worse. And so um, I, I think the lesson I've learned is that we can't play that game. We need to be clear about what we're going to do, and then we need to do it. Um, and that Western kind of vacillation, if that's the right word, um, is provocative in its own way, because it causes Russia in this case, but not only Russia, to, you know, to test the proposition. You know, are they really going to do something? Because they didn't before, and why would they do it now? And so I think um, Western weakness, uh, which might be another word for it, is actually more provocative than Western strength.
0: This will be our final question.
4: Well, in, in that vein, uh, and my question is pretty extensive, but I'll try to synced. But in that vein, um, I tend to be a, a culturalist where I try to be geocentric. But I think very often in our policies, we as a country are very ethnocentric, meaning because we wouldn't do something and because we don't perceive something in one way or another, everybody else will perceive it the same way. And we're absolutely wrong when we make that, that assumption. Um, and I go back to uh, some of the comments that you made earlier that uh, uh, regarding how Putin is perceiving our reaction, and, and he's wrong because uh, he invaded a country. And I totally agree with that, he is wrong, he is a criminal, I totally agree with that. But I, I go back to a couple of several points. Uh, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. They received informal assurances that NATO would not expand from Secretary of State Jim Baker. Now that's kind of been misunderstood, but debated. Uh, There's the uh, accords that were signed since then, the NAACC Accords, the Partnership for Peace Accords, the Europe-Atlantic Partnership. Uh, Putin himself even made intonations that he wanted to join NATO. They signed, they they formed the Russia-NATO Council in 2012. But all the while, what was happening was NATO was encroaching on their territory. Now, rightfully so, sure, the former CIS states, feared Russia, so they wanted NATO membership. Putin made it very clear in the Russian Foreign Postulates 2012 um, through 2018, published by the Russian International Affairs Council, that they wouldn't tolerate incursion on their territory. Very clear. So, you know, my question is, first of all, don't administrations read these kinds of publications? But number two, the question becomes, if Russia were doing the same in the United States or, or in the Caribbean, Mexico, Canada, by encroaching on those territories. Cuban Missile Crisis is an example. How would the West and how would we as a country react? Now, again, this is making no excuse toward Russia or, or for Russia. Again, he is a criminal, he's a war criminal. But he clearly gave messages that he was not going to tolerate NATO incursion on his country. And, and to your point, Yes, I agree. David,
1: maybe we should let the ambassador answer that far. Well,
4: I'm, I'm just finishing this real quick. To your point, I would agree that we looked at it commercially. He looked at it strategically. So anyway, I offer that as a question. And yes, it was long. My apologies. Thank you.
2: So thanks for that question. Um, I, I agree with you that um, the U.S. often looks at things, you know, from our own point of view. I think actually Russia does as well, um, and kind of mirrors, you know, well we would do this, and so therefore they're doing this. And and Russia, um, you know, an aggressive expansionist country, um, looks in the mirror, <laughs> and is assuming that the U.S. is doing the same thing when I don't think that is the case at all. Um, I also think that we tend to look at events uh, around the world. And assume that it is all about the U.S. You know, we we did we did something to cause that, or we didn't do something, and therefore it's our fault. Or we take a lot of credit where maybe credit is not due, um, because in every case um, around the world, in every country around the world, um, even you know, with a superpower like the United States. Um, the single most important actor is actually that country and you know what what makes up the 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 the, the power in, in that country the population the leadership uh etc and we sometimes tend to forget that although as ambassadors i'm sure you've often had the the experience of going in and asking a country to do something and they're like mm, yeah no uh and so so much for that but they have agency and we forget that we forget that countries have agency so um to take the last part first, um, so um, encroaching on Russian territory. Well, um, I, I know that Russia has this 18th century view of things, um, of spheres of influence, and that um, you know that um, countries um, outside of uh, of Russian space, uh, Russian borders, you know, are theirs or should be theirs, or should follow their uh, foreign policy line. Um, but you know most of the rest of the world has moved on. And, um, you know, we haven't gone into the fact that this is actually um, a, a war of empire. You know, Russia wanting to extend its empire. I mean, European countries have, have, have stopped um, that many, many years ago. Um, and Russia needs to stop it as well, in my view. Um, NATO has expanded over the years, um, but not into Russian territory. It's um, it's expanded because sovereign countries have requested membership. This was not because we pushed them into it because we ran around in the early uh, 1990s and 2000s and said, "Hey, you want to join up?" Um, it was demand driven because these countries have had a lot of experience with uh, Russia and the Soviet Union over the past um, the previous 70 years, but also over the centuries. And they wanted to join NATO because NATO is not an aggressive um, uh, pact that is attacking other countries. It is actually a defensive, uh, a mutual defense pact, uh, the most successful in the history of the world. And they wanted to be a part of that so that if Russia were to attack, um, they would have you know, friends coming coming to help them out. There's a lot more I could say to that, but I want to move on to... Um, to the other, the, the first thing you raised, which is that uh, James Baker promised that um, that NATO would not expand. So Putin has um, put out that piece of disinformation. But I'd point, um, since I can't go into all of the details now because we're running out of time, but um, I'd, I'd point you all to um, an article that Steve Pfeiffer wrote um, in. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure, but I can can send it to you and share it, Um, where um, Gorbachev, in an interview in 2014, uh, who was not a fan of NATO expansion, but he said, you know, that promise was never made. Um, The the, the negotiations in questions were were what we'll call the two by four um, negotiations about the unification of Germany in 1989 and 1990. Nobody. at Well, maybe some people at that point were thinking the Soviet Union was also going to fall apart, but nobody was thinking that. It was when the Eastern European countries, as we called them then, um, all of a sudden, you know, broke free from uh, from the uh, Iron Curtain, and um, uh, German unification was on the table. And so, what what the promise that was made, and what was put into the actual treaty agreement, uh, was that. Um, NATO countries other than West West Germany at the time um, would not um, would not expand into what was then Eastern Germany, and as Gorbachev said in that 2014 um, interview, he said that promise was kept. Now he then went on to criticize NATO expansion, which is a different matter. Um, but um, I think. Um, you know, a number of people who want to criticize NATO expansion, which one can do, you know, there, there are legitimate reasons to want to criticize it or to criticize it. Um, but that particular argument is just false. But Putin keeps on repeating it because it has a resonance of promises broken. Um, and um, it's it's simply disinformation.
1: Well, if there is ever any doubt in anyone in this room's mind about how professional, competent, thoughtful, and dedicated our American diplomats are, I think Ambassador Yovanovitch just gave us an extraordinarily masterful demonstration of what the Foreign Service
0: does for us. So I would like all of us to give her a very, 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 very warm round of applause.